You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Today's chapter is all about that. It's all about the love of God reaching out. And, and as we studied a couple of weeks ago, before Pastor Justin taught last week, we talked about uh, love being necessary. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 here, addressing the issues in the church at Corinth and how the believers there had become really puffed up and prideful and they were divisive and, you know, they were thinking, look, we're, we're the eschatological church. That meaning, meaning, hey, we're the church that's of the future. And, and so we're going to live like we're already there now. We're, we're going to, you know, we're going to speak with these tongues of angels and we're going to uh, not we're not going to encourage marriage and we're, we're going to do all of these different things and and that there was just all of these problems and so Paul is addressing all the problems and he's tying it together in chapter 13 he's saying look guys it all comes down to love you can speak with the tongues of men and of angels you can give your body to be burned at the stake you can do all of these amazing things but if you don't have love as the motive behind what you're doing, it's all for nothing. It's worthless. It's a waste, he says. And that was the first three verses of chapter 13. Love is absolutely necessary. It is the motive behind all that we do as Christians. But then he goes on to say that love is an action. Totally contradicting what the world teaches us that love is. That love is just a feeling. That love, you know, it's this roller coaster type emotion that one day you're, you're so in love. But if you're so in love, we all know what that means. A few days later, you can be out of love, right? You can be down in the lows and the valleys and no longer feel love. And so Paul says, listen, listen, God's love is totally different than an emotion that one day is with you and one day is not. God's love is an action. It is an action that is so much deeper than words. And, and, and husbands and wives, that's encouraging for us because we all know that, you know, marriage isn't all it's always cracked up to be in the world, right? You know, the marriage in the world is, you know, it's like that's the, the end all. But we realize, hey, after marriage, you wake up and you look over at that person and they got saliva dripping out of their mouth, you know? And they got bad breath, you know, and, and they're just, you know, <laughs> they're just not that knight in shining armor you thought they were when you married them. And so the feelings can go and you're like, man, yeah, what's wrong with that? You know, you need, you need some personal time in the bathroom, you know, uh, whatever it might be. But, but, but we realize, hey, love has got to be deeper than that. And that's what God says. My love for you is so much deeper. It's so much more than just a feeling. I love you even in your worst moments. I love you even after you've fallen in sin. I still love you even when you turn your back on me and forsake me. God says, I love you and I'm going to pursue you. My love for you is relentless. And that's the love in action in verses 4 through 7. And, and, and we looked at that two weeks ago. I was telling you guys, it's like a bombshell in my heart, guys. I read this and I go, okay, Phil McKay is not this kind of love. <laughs> I don't, I rarely show this kind of love. Lord, help me. And, and it drives me to my knees, doesn't it? This, this idea that God is love, God is love in action. 
I need to be like him. I'm called to emulate him. And so I call out to him and I need your help, Lord. Well, now Paul is finishing this chapter with this last point, And that is that love is forever. Paul's point is that love is forever. And that's how he's going to finish this chapter. He's trying to stress the importance of love by making this statement about it and shedding light on what it means in relation to the spiritual gifts and the manifestations and especially the gift of tongues that was taking place there in the Corinthian church and was actually being abused. Remember, they were putting so much emphasis on the gifts and especially the gift of tongues. They saw the gift of tongues as the evidence of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is saying, look, we need to pull back from that. We need to realize that you can have all the spiritual gifts in the world, but if you don't have the motive of love behind it, it's worthless. And love is more important because love is going to last forever. Let's pick it up there in verse 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8. He says, love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Let's pause here. Paul begins this third and final section with this strong statement here about love. He says, it never fails. What he's literally saying is that love will never cease to be relevant. Love for all eternity will never cease to be relevant. Why is that? I'll tell you why. It's because it is God's nature. It is God's primary attribute. We've talked about that, haven't we? God is love. I'll say this again. God's love is mentioned ten times more than God's holiness, God's justice, God's righteousness in the Scriptures. If you read through your Bible, you cannot escape the fact that God is love. It started in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? God created Adam and Eve, and where did he put them? He put them right in the middle of paradise. And he said, hey, go out and enjoy it. Be fruitful and multiply. Be be the lords of everything that I've created, he tells them. There's only one thing you can't do, and that's eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And that was, that was where he placed him. He said, in my love, I put, I'm putting you in this place, in, in ultimate goodness, and that was, that's where it starts, and it goes all through the Bible, that theme that God is love. But he mentions here a couple of the gifts in verse 8. A couple of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are relative to this temporary age in which the church is living. But these gifts, they're not going to be needed once Jesus raptures the church and takes the believers to be with Him forever. Once believers are in the presence of the Lord, these spiritual gifts, Paul says, they're going to cease one day. Prophecy, for example, prophecy will one day cease, Paul is saying. Because why? Because there's not going to be any more need of it, guys. We're going to be living it. Think about it. The book of Revelation, all of it reveals, we're going to finally see it. We're going to go, whoa, that's what it was all about. I didn't quite understand what this was. Man, I thought those, those things were helicopters and tanks, but they were actually demons that God brought. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll get to see it all. And so prophecy is one day going to cease. There's not going to be any need of it. We'll be living it. The gift of tongues will no longer be necessary in, the, in, in eternity. Why? Because we will not need to be aided in our prayers by the Holy Spirit. We're going to be right there. We're going to be in His presence. It's going to be so amazing. Our imperfect knowledge 
here Paul is saying is going to vanish away and we're going to understand the reality and the truth of eternal life. Church, have you guys thought about that? Have you, have you seriously thought about that for a second? Just, just pause for a second. I know Sundays are kind of crazy. We jump up, we, we comb our hair, we brush our teeth, we put on, you know, and we come to church and we've got this, you know, some of us have an image we're trying to present, possibly. And, and church is so fake sometimes. But listen, don't let fake church get in the way of the reality that one day you will stand before your maker. You will stand in the presence of God. You will step into the eternal blaze of glory. And there, in the presence of God, all of these imperfect knowledge, the, imperfect, the imperfections of our flesh, they're going to vanish away. Prophecy is no longer necessary. The gift of tongues no longer necessary because we'll be there in His presence. Paul goes on to say in verse 9, For we know in part... And we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. See, what Paul is doing here is comparing the present age with the age that is to come when Christ ushers in His kingdom. The kingdom of heaven will be vastly different. The experience of of heaven, the experience of eternity is vastly different than what the church and we believers are experiencing today. Paul says that now in the temporary life, this temporary time before Jesus Christ sets up his kingdom, he says we only know and prophesy in part. What does he mean? He means in an imperfect state. We don't have a complete knowledge. We don't have a complete picture. We don't know God the same way that God knows us. And why is that? Well, it's because of the fall. The fall there in the Garden of Eden, that that sinful nature that was passed down to every human being since Adam fell. And so you and I, because of sin, because of the flesh, we no longer live in a complete state, in in a perfect state. We're marred by sin. We're marred by the curse of sin. But listen, when we prophesy, we don't see the whole picture. We don't have all the answers. There's still things that are hidden from us, and we don't fully understand them. Like I said, you read the book of Revelation, you get ten different pastors teaching ten different things about what that could mean. And and we don't understand it fully. There's this imperfect state in the sense of what we know and how we're able to relate to God. Then in verse 10, Paul brings that point home. You saw it there. He says, we won't always be living in the imperfect temporal state. Now this is good news for the believer in Jesus Christ. It's not so good news if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ. If you die in your sins, this is not good news for you. Because the Bible speaks of judgment that is to come for the sinner. For the man, the woman that living in sin rejects God's free gift of salvation, His gift of grace, and says, no, I'm going to save myself. And they will step into an eternal state of judgment, the Bible talks about. But for the believer, this is good news. Because Paul is referring to is the completion of, of, of every promise that God has given to us. And so it's an exciting time. Now, this is interesting here. There are some that believe that verse 10 is referring to this sort of this completion of the canon of Scripture. 
Which is interesting. Because in order to make that B, you have to really take this text out of context. You have to take this out of its context to say, hey, what Paul is really trying to say is that when the Bible is canonized, when Scripture is canonized, that, that that's what that's talking about, and all the gifts are going to cease when the Bible is canonized. And so it's an interesting take there, but this is why we have to study the Scriptures verse by verse, taking this in the context of the chapter, taking this in the context of the chapters before and after it, and in the context of the entire letter to the Corinthians. And when we do that, we realize that Paul, the entire letter, he's been speaking about eschatology, the future. The future kingdom of God and how Jesus is going to bring His kingdom to completion. And how we as believers are a part of that now. We live in a temporary stage, but this is not who we will be. And so that's what Paul is speaking about here. Guys, this is why at Calvary Chapel we study the Bible verse by verse. We don't want to attempt to make Scripture say what we want it to say in order to fit our predisposed dispositions of how it should be translated or interpreted. We don't want to try to mold this around a doctrine that we're comfortable with. That's not a biblical way to study the Bible. Listen, we believe in inductive Bible study, in expository preaching, in which we extract the message from the text itself, and that is what we preach. And that is what is important to us. Not the doctrines that men come up with, not what they uh, uh, try to seek to explain things in order to feel comfortable about things that they read and see in the Bible. Listen, Paul here is most definitely not trying to make a case for why spiritual gifts and manifestations of the Holy Spirit are no longer necessary. That is not his point. On the contrary, in this chapter, he is actually affirming the importance of of the gifts while at the same time putting them in a proper context. The church needs spiritual gifts now. Why? Because we need to be built up. We need to be edified. We need to be ministered to through the power of the Spirit. But listen, there will come a time, believers, in the future, when we are in the presence of Jesus Christ, in which the same spiritual gifts that now build us up, they will no longer be necessary. He backs this up now by giving us two different metaphors of the comparison that he's trying to make. These metaphors or analogies, they emphasize clearly what he has just taught about the comparison between the temporary age of the church now and the future age in the kingdom of Christ. Look at verse 11 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now, there are those that would say, okay, see, Paul is talking about the gift of tongues. It's a childish thing. You need to put that away. We've now come to the full maturity of Christ, and that's no longer necessary. But listen, that's not what Paul is saying. This is a metaphor, and it's a comparison. This first one is a comparison of the life of a child with that of the life of an adult. Two total different experiences. He's relating the stage of childhood to the present age when the church still needs the gifts to be edified and built up. 
And he's relating that to the future age or stage of the, church, of, the, uh, of the kingdom of Christ. You know, each one of our kids in the McKay family has had a kind of a trademark phrase or a saying. They were so cute when they were toddlers. My wife has a baby book and she likes to take notes and write those things down, you know, so that we remember them. Every now and then we'll pull it out. But little things like, you know, I want pancakes, you know, instead of pancakes. Or pour me some milk, daddy, you know. Why is it always milk instead of milk? Why can't they get the M-I right, you know? Milk, but it's always milk with my kids. Uh, or it will be so pun, you know? They can't say their little F, so they say peas, peas instead. Or I'm not a grill, I'm a boy, you know? They, they talk like that. And all these little things, or, you know, our, our, our youngest, we often, you know, try to, we used to play a game with him and say, you know, are you, are you mommy's boy or are you daddy's boy, you know, and I'm trying to get him to say he's daddy's boy, you know, you daddy's boy, aren't you, you know, and he would look at us both and go, I'm mommy's boy and daddy's boy, you know, and so he would just, you know, he's a politician from the get-go, you know, <laughs> knew how to play us both, still does, by the way. But as a child, you know, we look at these kids and we just go, man, you're so cute. I, I would eat you up if I could, you know. He's so cute. Love it. And it's funny. It's age appropriate. But listen, if my kids are still talking that way as 9 and 10-year-olds, I'm going to start getting worried, okay? I'm going to be a little bit worried about that, and I'm going to go, okay, what do we need to do to, you know, get this kid to grow up a little bit, you know? Uh, even worse, if these guys were adults and still talking this way. Now, that's a, that's a huge problem. Daddy, I want pancakes. Get in the kitchen and make them yourself, boy. <laughs> you know? I mean, I'm not going to be like that with my kids when they're adults. So there's a difference in the two stages. One is uh, there, there, there are appropriate needs that relate to childhood. And then when they become adults, that level of responsibility increases and it changes and it's so different. You know, I, I also remember that each one of our kids either had a binky or a passy, pacifier, or a favorite finger that they liked to suck on and cuddle with that helped them to go to sleep every night. And, you know, it was one of those things, I remember with my daughter Eden, she had this little silky, you know, it was this little square, actually it started out as a blanket, it was very, very soft, you know, and she cuddled with that thing, you know. But coming on six or seven years old, I started realizing, man, she can't even go to sleep without that thing. She's so dependent on that thing to go to sleep. And so I said, you know, we got a wiener of this, you know. So, so I took that blanket and cut it down to a square, you know. So she had a square. And she didn't really notice, you know. She wasn't perceptive enough to realize that I had done that. And, and then slowly that square started to get smaller and smaller every week until finally it was just a little patch of material but she still had to have it, you know. It was like, I have to have this to go to sleep. She would cuddle with that thing, and, and it was this sort of thing. And, you know, other kids, you know, she, or she also, you know, she, she was a, a finger sucker. That was her thing. So she had her silky and her fingers, right? Other kids have had thumbs. Some had a pacifier. All that stuff went away, though, you know. Whether it was me putting Band-Aids on their fingers so they'd stop sucking them or putting a sock on their arm, you know, or cutting that pacifier down to nothing. Hey, we took care of that because... Because why? Because, you know, it's age appropriate. When you're a little kid, hey, you need help going to sleep. But as you get older, 
I would hate to see, you know, you know, my wife sucking her thumb in bed next to me, you know? I mean, that would just be weird. Hey, come on, what are you doing, you know? And, and so we have to realize there's an age-appropriate behavior to all of these things. But really, the different stages, it's apples to oranges. Childhood, as compared to adulthood, is totally different. Another quick story, just... Uh, one of, our, one of our kids, and I'm not going to name any names. I'm already embarrassing him enough. But, you know, coming down in, in the middle of the night and using the restroom in inappropriate places. You know, I don't know if that's ever happened to you. But, you know, one, one time saw, you know, the drawer open up, you know. And I'm over there watching a TV show with Rebecca. And I look over and I see one of our kids using the restroom in the kitchen, you know. And I'm like, what are you doing? You know, what are you thinking? And, and it's, it's not that. They, they don't know what they're doing. They're, they're asleep. But, you know, I, I'm just glad that, I, I mean, I don't think I do that. I, I don't think I do that. But as an adult, can you imagine if we were just, you know, going to the bathroom wherever we wanted? I was just talking to uh, uh, my sister on the phone. She's got three boys, and she was telling me that, you know, all three of her boys, it, it's a constant mess in the bathroom. You know how that goes with the boys. And so she brought them in there and said, boys, look at this floor. Who is doing this on the floor? You know, and her youngest looked at her and said, it's not me because I never go in the house, you know. So... <laughs> That's appropriate for a little one, but if you're a full-grown man and that's what you're doing, you know, you're walking outside every time, that's a problem, okay? So we know there's an experience of children. It's always going to be vastly different than the experience of an adult because there is, in normal cases, a vast difference in the amount of knowledge and the amount of understanding of life that is possessed. And that's what Paul is, that, that ties into what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying about love being the supreme way, the most excellent way. And in comparison to eternity, this temporary present age of the church, it's an incomplete experience compared to when Christ comes in his kingdom. It's an incomplete experience compared to the complete experience that the church will have when Christ comes to set up his kingdom. Now, in light of this, it is important that the Corinthian believers learn to operate in the gift or this divine love towards one another, because that's got to be the reason for what we do. It's got to be the reason behind the gifts of the Holy Spirit. If it's not the reason behind the gifts of the Holy Spirit, then it's all empty, clanging cymbals and sounding gongs. It's no good. Paul gives a second metaphor in verse 12. He says, for, we, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Now this is a very appropriate metaphor here in verse 12 for the Corinthian church. And that is because the city of Corinth was famous for their production of some of the finest bronze mirrors in ancient history. Now the idea here is that looking at the reflection of someone in a mirror is much less perfect than actually seeing that person face to face. That's the idea of what Paul is saying. Now in our modern times, we might liken this to the difference between looking at a picture of someone on your phone and actually seeing that person face to face, actually being in their presence which is better? You know, for me, right now, my wife is uh, back in California. She stayed back, and she's with her family right now. So all I can see is a picture of my wife. 
But I can tell you, I would much prefer to have my wife here with me in person. That's so much more meaningful. There's so much more of an experience when she is with me in person, physically. So that's the idea here. If, and that's what Paul's trying to express with this metaphor. He says, listen, our Christian experience with the Lord now in a fallen state, before that eternal state of God's kingdom, it's a different experience entirely than what it will one day be. It's like looking at a picture. Okay, we see the picture but we don't experience that picture. We don't understand it fully. It's not the same as if we were in Christ's presence. The moment that we are in the presence of Christ, everything changes, doesn't it? Wow! Man, have you ever thought about what you're going to do when you enter into Christ's presence? It's going to be amazing. I'm, I, I'm sure that, you know, it's, it's going to blow us away. But listen, right now, My knowledge is shaped by what I can understand, what I can learn, what I can be exposed to and and read and learn and things that I can can experience here. But there's going to be a time when I will have an instant knowledge of God and I will physically be in His presence. I'm going to know Him as He knows me right now. I'm going to have eternal access to His presence and the difference is completely vast. It's, it's huge. It's going to be a different experience entirely. Paul finishes out the chapter in verse 13. He says, and now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love, he says. So he mentions three things here, faith, hope, and love. And it's believed that in the ancient Christian church, faith, hope, and love were, were, were uh, often spoken of together by the preachers in the early church because they really encompass the, the, the common life of every single believer. Each one of us, uh, it's necessary to have faith. That's how we come to Jesus Christ. We place our faith and trust in Jesus to save us from our sins. And so faith is a common experience for us. But also hope. Hope is something that, hey, we look at and we say, we have an earnest expectation, we have a sincere expectation that God is going to come through on these promises, that His forgiveness is, is real, that, that, that one day we will be standing in His presence, and it will be that way for all eternity. We have that hope. But then we also have love. We share love. This divine love that God has given to us. It's a part of our common experience. Yet there will come a time, the Bible teaches us, in the eschatological future, after the end time events that are prophesied of in the book of uh, Revelation, in Matthew chapter 24, and Daniel chapter 7. And those things, those events, once they come to pass, then there's going to come a time in which only love remains. Only divine love remains. Think about this. Your faith will become reality. Your hope will be realized. And love, God's divine love, it will be forever. So divine love does not eliminate the gifts of the Holy Spirit today. That's not what Paul is saying in this chapter. Instead, Paul's point is that it is absolutely essential for the believer in Christ 
today and forever, that God's love is a part of our lives. On the other hand, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not forever. They have been given to us to help build each other up in the Lord and to serve each other, but they're only going to be around until Christ returns to the earth in His glory. So I want to close with this thought today. God is love. I mentioned that before. God's primary attribute as you study Him in the Scriptures is that He is love. His love is mentioned ten times more than His holiness or His sovereignty in the Scriptures. A fact that some of my Calvinist friends don't like to, to dwell on very much. But listen, it is true. And knowing that God is love, 1 John 4, verse 7 and 8 tells us that, hey, we love one another because, hey, that's who God is. God is love. And knowing that He is love and that divine love will continue on into eternity forever, how does that change your life today? How is that supposed to change your life and my life today? You know, as a Christian... We all have priorities in our lives. Sadly, much like the world around us, many Christians' first priority is ourselves. We put ourselves first. We think of ourselves first. We think of ourselves all the time. If I'm anything like you guys, I know that I'm the center of the universe so many days of the week. So what is the priority in our lives? Is it you? Is it yourself? Or is it God? This chapter challenges us to put God and love for God first. You know, Jesus taught us that the very first commandment is that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the first commandment. And the second, he said, is like it in that we're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves You see, the Bible never tells us to go and love ourselves. The Bible never says, go out and try harder to love yourself. That's all you need to do to fix your problems is just go find yourself and love yourself a little bit. Pamper yourself. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus said, love others the way you love yourself. See, the Bible just takes it for granted that you already love yourself. God knows who we are in the sinful nature that we have, that we'll be looking out for number one more often than not, and he challenges us. And this chapter challenges you and I today. And, and, and we're challenged to love God and to love others in this chapter. So I would ask you, is your life characterized by godly love? As we've gone through this and we've read through and, and, and looked at what love is, is your life characterized by godly love? And then the other question that I would ask you today is... Are you in the camp? Well, listen, (laughs) the Corinthian church was in a different camp than what so many churches are in today. See, many churches today are in the camp of believing, listen, the gifts of the Holy Spirit have ceased. They're not for today. And and I realize that that can be a a tricky thing. It can be a touchy thing. I believe uh, a lot of people go through different church, come from different church backgrounds, and I understand that. And I want to be sensitive about that. And understand, listen, This is not one of those things that I think is an essential of the faith that we need to fight and divide over at all. Please, no. I love 
all you guys, and, and, and I want you to know that, and don't want to divide over this, but I do want to challenge you with this. See, the Corinthian church, they had the opposite problem where, man, they were, <laughs> they were all focused on the gifts, man. It was, it was wild and crazy in that church. But Paul says that was a problem. And so he's addressing the problem. He's saying, listen, there's got to be a balance here. The emphasis is not on the gifts. The emphasis needs to be on the greatest way, which is love. The reason behind the gifts has to be the motive of Christian love, godly love. If it's not, then it's all for nothing, he says. So tone it down, and we're going to get into that. He's going to give some guidelines in chapter 14. Very important guidelines for the public worship service. But listen, so many churches today are landed way on the other side of the church of Corinth. And, and they think, well, you know, all that stuff, it makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't like it. So I'm just not going to, that's just not going to be a part of my Christian life. But that's to err on the other side of, of the wrong side of the issue. See, we've got to strike this biblical balance. Paul says, listen, yes, the gifts are for this temporary age that the church is living in because we need them. We need to be built up. We need to be edified. We need to, to, to have these words of knowledge and words of wisdom and, and prophecy shared with us to build us up. And, and, and a believer who can pray in the gift of tongues and be personally edified as he's pouring out his heart to the Lord, that's a necessary thing. It's a, it's a help that the Holy Spirit wants to give to us now. But there's coming a time when all of that is not going to be around. And the only thing that's going to last is God's divine love. So knowing that practice that love now. Love, divine love, is the mark of a Christian man or woman who loves, is loving God with all their heart and loving their neighbor. That is to be emphasized, not the gifts of the Spirit. So where are you at on that issue? And, and, and I would ask you to just open your heart to the Scriptures, open your heart to the Holy Spirit to guide you to the truth as you study the Word of God. Now lastly, how do we get godly love? Well, it begins by abiding in Jesus Christ. You have to live in a relationship with Him. Turn over to John chapter four, uh, 15 with me. John chapter 15, verse 4. John chapter 15 and verse 4 says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And then he goes on to say in verse 5, I am the vine. This is Jesus talking. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Notice there. You can do nothing without Jesus Christ. He's divine. So if we're going to have divine love in our lives, we have to abide in Christ. It can only be produced naturally out of a relationship stems from the God of love. That stems from the God of love. He is the vine, and he's the one who will produce the fruit in our lives. And as we abide in Jesus, his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, produces the fruit of that relationship in our lives. And, and I just want to read to you, you don't have to turn there, but Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 22, says this, The fruit of the Spirit is love. 
the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So guys, it's important to realize you cannot strive to produce divine love in your life. Agape love has only one source. It comes from God. And it only comes to you when God touches your life through His grace and through His love. Has your love for the Lord grown cold? Then you need to spend some time abiding in the vine. You need to realize that all that God has done for you. You need to realize who He is and who you are. When I realize who I am in the light of who God is, wow, it blows me away. His grace, His mercy, His love. It, it, it tickles me. It makes me happy. It makes me laugh to realize that God loves a sinner like me. A sinner like me. And He, he, he desires that I would spend time with him. He desires to have a relationship with me. God desires a relationship with you this morning. Let's pray.